When we opened Isaiah 9 two weeks ago, we beheld this truth. That Jesus is the entire reason Christmas shines brightly. In fact, we, we clearly declared that he's the pinnacle of God's progressive plan. It all culminates in Jesus. And so what we've been doing now in Isaiah 9 is looking at the various facets or aspects of Jesus and just seeing week after week in this beautifully prophetic passage, uh, his beauty, his radiance. Last week, of course, we saw that there were two things that are just beautifully bright about him, his humanity and his deity, both necessary, of course, to our redemption. And this week, we're going to see another aspect that's brilliant, remarkably brilliant, and that is his authority. So turn to Isaiah 9, would you? And just to prepare you a bit, this week will seem somewhat like what Friday morning is going to feel like for many of you. Like as we begin this message and look at this phrase, it's going to feel like papers flying everywhere. And we're just tearing into the gifts and it's going to be a lot of information, a lot of terms. You're going to think, man, but as we kind of land the plane, it'll all kind of unfold and unwrap and there'll be one clear gift in front of us. So if you get a little um, chaotic and crazy in the beginning, don't worry. This plane's definitely going somewhere, all right? Now, as you're turning to Isaiah 9, you're probably already there. Uh, let me just state the obvious that will help us, again, have the right framework for this phrase we're going to unpack that will show us Christ's beauty in another way. That there is no country, nation, region, empire, or earthly kingdom that has a singular leader with the ability to hold the full weight of governance on his or her shoulders. It does not exist. Obviously, ours doesn't. I don't mean that in a jestful, critical manner. I'm simply meaning it in a factual manner. That's why we have the balance of powers, checks and balances. No one person can hold the weight of governance. No other kingdoms have been able to, even with their dictatorships that may have gone for decades and even passed down through centuries. At some point, men fail us. No one has those kinds of shoulders. In fact, Israel didn't. Their greatest king, King David, who is the type of our Savior, I would remind you, even their greatest king sinned in a way that caused incredible family dysfunction that led to the splitting of the kingdom, which for hundreds of years was a nightmare in both Israel and Judah. So imagine what God's people sensed and felt like when they read Isaiah 9, verse 6. Your eyes are there, aren't they? Let me begin at the beginning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. I'm sure there's joy in their hearts when they read that, but look at the next phrase. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Wow. If you had just been a part of hundreds of years of a divided kingdom, massive wars, ruined economies, um, split loyalties, and just name your issue. It's probably, it was probably present in those kingdoms. 
when you read this, your heart begins to take, um, to anticipate with joy what's coming. One, who, one is coming upon whose shoulder the government, the rule will rest. This is remarkable. And he's speaking here of a ruler. And so I think the word we're looking at here that we're going to kind of focus on today is the word authority. I would just take that word and kind of lay it across the, the landscape of your mind this morning. This is what's being discussed in this phrase of Isaiah 9, 6. Remember, week one was his deity and his humanity. Now we're looking at his authority. And it is a radiantly beautiful and bright aspect of Jesus. In fact, what we're going to see in this phrase is that Jesus bears the burden that you and I or that we have never been able to bear. This is what Isaiah 9, 6 declares for us. In fact, it's a word picture of something that I think helps us kind of get a handle around this phrase. When he talks about bearing the governance upon his shoulder, it really pictures what you would do to a ruler when they would take the stage of the platform and they would drape their shoulders with the uh, kingly robe. They would place it upon his shoulder, indicating symbolically, you now rule, you now have authority. And what this passage is saying is, God has draped Jesus with the mantle of his authority. The robe of divine authority is upon Jesus. But he will not rule like every other ruler. He'll rule perfectly. He will bear the weight of governing God's kingdom upon his shoulders majestically. So what I want to do now for a few minutes is kind of unfold for you how this prophecy encouraged them and how it encourages us. All right? So get ready for the paper to fly for a bit. All right? I want to talk to you about the two aspects of this simple phrase. It has a real-time fulfillment, and it has an end-time fulfillment. So let's talk for a minute how the real-time fulfillment encouraged them. Notice that in its real-time fulfillment, what Isaiah here is prophesying and speaking of is the kingdom of God inaugurated. In other words, when Christ came, he no doubt brought a kingdom he was a king. He was a baby, yes, born that way, but he was born a king. I'd remind you what the scriptures say to us here. Notice a couple of very clear observations that, that clear this up for us. He is called a king at his birth. He's called a king at his death. He is recognized as a king with authority just before his ascension. John the Baptist talked about the coming king and the kingdom, and Jesus Christ said these words explicitly when he was on earth beginning his ministry. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He spoke about the kingdom to his disciples. He spoke about the kingdom to the crowds. He used parables to explain what the kingdom of God was like. So it would be foolish. It would be a malpractice for us to say, oh, Jesus Christ didn't bring a kingdom. He most certainly did. Which means if there is a kingdom, there must be a what? A king, and Jesus is the king. This is what Isaiah was pointing to. Now, often we think, well, if the kingdom came, uh, why aren't we seeing more of it today? Why isn't it like, you know, fully in place? We have these honest, legitimate questions. It's because the kingdom of God, when Christ came, was inaugurated. And that's a really important word. In other words, it, we could say this, it began to unfold. This kind of goes back again to what I taught you in week one, that God's plan is progressive. It's incremental. 
But let's make no mistake. There is a kingdom and Jesus is the king. In his first coming, he came to inaugurate the kingdom by doing this, by winning the war against sin through his merciful and sacrificial death. He came to purchase salvation for God's people. He did not come in his first coming to execute final judgment on those who were not God's people. And this needs some nuance here, and I want you to hang with me. Because we're looking at his first coming, his first advent, and why did he come in that first advent? You could go to Matthew's story about Christmas and see that he came to save his people from their sins. But let me give you some more nuance to this, because it, it would be technically incorrect to say there wasn't some judgment when he first came. There was an aspect of judgment, but it wasn't his direct reason. It wasn't his primary purpose for coming. For instance, John 9, 39 says this, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So in one sense, we can say judgment is occurring, even in God's saving work, as people who never believe ultimately fall under the weight of God's judgment. So there's such sense of judgment in that first coming. But it's a secondary result. His primary purpose, his direct reason for coming was to save people from sin. It wasn't necessarily to condemn people. It was to actually free them from condemnation. Does that make sense? That's the main reason for his first coming. Here's some verses to kind of hang your hat on. John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here's John 12, 47. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And I think Hebrews gives us a really good, succinct statement of both of these. Listen to Hebrews 12, excuse me, 9, 28. And just as it is appointed to man once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now watch this. It says here that his first coming, he dealt with sin. In other words, he conquered sin, he defeated sin, and he saved people from sin. But then it says when he comes again, he's going to save those who are waiting. Why is he saving those who are waiting? Because when he comes a second time, he's going to judge those who have not believed. And he's going to rescue us from that ultimate final judgment. So understand something here. When we say the kingdom was inaugurated, what we're talking about is when Christ first came at his first advent, he came primarily, directly. His, his main mission was to give his life as a ransom and to purchase the people of God, to save them. Doesn't mean that there aren't difficult things associated with that, but the ultimate final judgment is still to come. Let me illustrate. Uh, this past Tuesday, I did have foot surgery. Um, I had the left foot done about two months ago, and I've got some issues with both my feet that I'm glad to take care of because it will help me as the years unfold with our grandkids, and I don't want to be you know, hobbling around if I don't have to be. So it was a good time to take care of it. <clears throat> now, what if before I went under the anesthesia, I looked up at the surgeon and I said, hey, listen, I, are you here to condemn my foot? Are you going to cut it off? And he says, no, I've looked at it. We've x-rayed. We've talked about it. I'm actually going to do some difficult things, but it will help your foot in the end. I'm actually here to save your foot, Todd. We'd know exactly what he meant, wouldn't we? And so he puts me to sleep. He takes the knife and he does the work. As hard as it is in the moment, we know he's actually doing a good thing, right? So that's what's going on with Christ's first coming. Were there hard aspects? Was it difficult? Yes. 
But if you said, hey, did you, did you come to condemn us? Did you come to just execute us all now? He says, no, no, I came to save you. I came to inaugurate the kingdom. So my point is this, a king has come, has defeated sin, and is saving people from its ultimate condemnation. This is soul-stirring, heart-gladdening, life-changing news. Christmas is far more than just presents and a manger and a few carols. It's the news that a Savior has come. This is what was prophesied not only here in Isaiah, that an authoritative one would come who would set up a kingdom and begin to rule. But look at some verses we read this week in our Advent readings. I, and I was especially moved by Jeremiah 33. Julie and I just love these verses but look what some of these verses we read about the coming king, about the coming savior. He says here, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in those days at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So you get the idea of some authoritative kingly rule here through one that is coming in the line of David. Also look at Micah 5, 2 through 4, when he predicts that it'll be specifically in Bethlehem, the smallest of these clans and places. It says, he shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure. So you get the sense, the sense that this king is coming. Look at Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. But look how he references this, this king. He's righteous, having salvation, and he's humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. So he's referencing Christ's first coming here. And he calls him a king. And so I just want you to understand that Isaiah 9, 6 is not only a verse about later. When we see the governance is upon his shoulder, we think, okay, well, that's got to be for later because that's not happening now. There isn't a final fulfillment yet, you're right, but it has been started. The king has come, and he inaugurated, he began his kingdom. Now, maybe you're asking right now, Todd, what gives? How is he an authoritative king if not everyone is submitting to his authority? How can we call that a kingdom when there seems to be so much rogueness going on around us? Well, I want to remind you that that day of, of kingdom consummation is still to come when his kingdom will culminate. And so that's the second aspect of Isaiah 9, 6 that we've got to kind of get our hands around, is that there is an end-time fulfillment to it as well. And it's called the kingdom consummated. In other words, there is an ultimate culmination to the kingdom. I'm not sure I like the word there's an end to the kingdom or there's a finishing to the kingdom because the kingdom will be forever. In fact, we see this in Isaiah 9, 7. Now notice, look at your text again. Remember the phrase we're seeing this morning, Isaiah 9, 6, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Christ will bear upon his shoulder uh, the responsibility to govern God's kingdom perfectly, majestically, without error. And so he gives these four couplets of names, which we'll look, out, which we'll look at in Christmas Eve and the next week. But following that, he then describes more about this government. Look what he says in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Do you see that? You see the words forevermore? Do you see the word increase? They're words of continuation. 
They're words of progression. So yes, God's kingdom came in Christ. It was inaugurated. It began. It will culminate and continue when he comes again. And this is what this mountain peak looks out over. It's the culmination, we may say the consummation of God's kingdom. Here's some other ways we say it that might help you get some hands around it. Not only is it inaugurated and now consummated when he comes, but it's unveiled at his first advent. It will be unrivaled at his second advent. Now let me share with you some scriptures that give us a sense of this kingdom that has started with a king and yet is waiting to be consummated or ultimately um, revealed in all of its beauty. Here's some New Testament passages. Look at Matthew chapter 6. We're to pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, there is a kingdom. It has a king. And right now it's in heaven and it has been inaugurated on earth. But it hasn't been fully revealed and fully consummated. So what are we to pray? Say it with me, church. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Look at Hebrews 12, 28. And I like the way that he takes this, this, this verb, and it's, it's a participle, kind of a present tense um, usage. He says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You notice that word receiving? Like something's ongoing, something's happening. It was started, we know it exists, we're receiving it, and it will culminate. Both of these revolve around the authority of Jesus to begin it and to culminate it. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10, which may be one of the most specific references to it. <clears throat> he speaks here of the Lord's patience in this intervening time between the first advent and the second advent when the kingdom was inaugurated and while we wait for it to be consummated. And he says, it's not that, that God fell asleep and has forgotten to send Jesus. He said he's actually patient. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. And then he says this, watch this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, there is a coming king dumb. And it's King Jesus will come again in judgment. And don't think that he's gotten lazy or sleepy because it's longer than you think it should be. It's the fact that God is merciful and gracious. And you see how this fits with the inauguration of the kingdom? His first coming was to announce salvation. So God is incredibly patient in this intervening time so that, that all who believe will be saved. That means you, whether you're listening, watching via our live stream, upstairs or in this room. There's a reason the Lord has not come back yet. It's so that you could be saved. That's how patient and loving and merciful God is. And I would just, as I say a lot around here, pastorally plead with you. If you've yet to trust Jesus Christ, if you've yet to believe in the good name of King Jesus, man, do not wait. Do it today. Trust the Lord today. Put your faith in Jesus as God's uh, sent one who is our Savior, as the King, who has authority over your life before it's too late because there is a day coming when he'll consummate his kingdom and it will be too late at that point to believe. 
Now, we've been talking a bit about how the inaugurated kingdom was prophesied and folks waited for it. I would say to you as well that the consummated kingdom was prophesied in the Old Testament as well. It's not quite as easy to spot, but in many passages you can begin to detect a shift between the first coming language and the second coming language. Uh, Daniel 2.44, Isaiah 66, my favorite's Isaiah 11. I'm not going to turn there right now. I just want you to realize that if you get to about verse 3 of Isaiah 11, you'll notice a shift in language that moves from his first coming to his second coming. Here's the best way to explain this, and I'd encourage you to listen to the Extra Point podcast on Tuesday. I talk more about this on there. But the Old Testament prophets really were looking into what is often known as history written in advance. That's kind of what prophecy is. It's history written in advance. And so they would see the mountain peaks of this history in advance. And so they see Christ's first coming. They prophesy about it based on the Holy Spirit's revelation and inspiration. And then they see another mountain peak, Christ's second coming. What they don't often see is how much time is between the mountain peaks. And when you're far away from something, you know, even the mountain peaks can seem close, right? But the truth is between them may be miles. In our case, it may be years or centuries. So when you read some Old Testament prophets, don't think that they only thought about his first coming. They were aware there was a second advent, and it was still a mystery. But there was this prophesying about both. So keep that in mind as you read some of these passages. What they were prophesying when his kingdom is consummated is what I think the Bible refers to as the millennium. Again, the paper's flying still, okay? So just get your hands around it. It's okay. Uh, the gift's going to be revealed shortly. Just hang with me. It's called the millennium. And the millennium is a, a thousand-year period in which Christ will visibly reign from Jerusalem on the earth. Now, there are different views on that. And man, I'm, I'm great friends with folks. In fact, I work with people who believe it's not quite exactly that. We get along fantastic, okay? I'm related to some, I work with some, and we're good. So everybody can just relax and breathe easy. The point is, we would all share this. There is an ultimate consummated reign of Christ still to come. He's coming back, and when he returns, it will inaugurate this consummated forever kingdom on the throne of David. This is what the Bible talks about. In fact, I think it may be mentioned three times in Revelation. Now, again, this goes back to perhaps your views on eschatology, and I, I won't go into that now. But if you were to see Revelation not necessarily as chronological only, but maybe as a repetitious cycle, uh, you'd find some information in Revelation 7 that sounds very millennial-like. Not speaking here to a generation, okay, but to an event, <laughs> Did you get that millennial? I'm not sure you followed that joke or not. Okay. Perhaps Revelation 7. Um, I think also Revelation 11. Uh, hear, hear this phrase in Revelation 11. This is a beautiful, perhaps, description of the millennium in which he says, the, the angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices saying this, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's pre-millennial-like, isn't it? The kingdom of God is coming to earth. It's being consummated. Revelation 20 is quite explicit. Listen to this. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and he shut it and sealed it over him. Isn't that good news? 
So with our varying views on the millennium, can we just say that we would agree on this? There is a day in which Christ will return. He will at that point execute final judgment and he will set up his kingdom. He will consummate what was inaugurated when he first came. And man, that's why we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now, is there a tone of sadness in that? Yes, because we know that when that occurs, the day of God's patience and long-suffering will be over. But think about what else will be over. Every sin that you and I struggle with, it'll be wiped away. Every injustice, every wrong, when Jesus comes and consummates his kingdom, and it is visibly, globally, he'll be the one ruler who will bear the governance upon his shoulders perfectly. I long for that day. So I've shown you these two aspects of this kingdom that was referenced in Isaiah 9, 6. The governance will be upon his shoulder. So he came and he began to reign. He's fully, viably the king now in heaven. He's going to come again and consummate this kingdom and reign visibly over the whole earth. And the glory of the Lord will be over the whole earth. And so what you have in between these two things is really, uh, we can say the, the cradle is on one side, you know, Christmas. The other side is the, the coming of Christ. So you may put a cradle here and a cloud here. He's coming in the clouds. He'll return for us. So just kind of keep these visible and visual images in mind as we think about this kingdom and this king. And this is exactly why Christmas shines brightly because both in its inauguration and in its consummation, Jesus is the one with the authority to rule this kingdom, both now and later. He's the king that God sent. And so we say this in a simple way. Here's why Christmas shines brightly. It's because of the authority of Jesus. Will you say the word authority with me? Authority of Jesus. You know, often we don't think about that word in an attractive way, do we? We don't think about it being a compelling, kind of inviting word. But I want to say to you from Isaiah 9, 6, I find it drawing me in. Like, wow, finally one who will rule perfectly with majestic errorless, blameless authority who will wear the mantle of divine um, power and authority without any problem? Yes, that has happened and it's going to come, uh, in his come when he comes again, it'll be consummated. This is what we know occurred historically and what will occur in the future. And so that's the blazing confidence upon which we worship, work, witness, and wait. Those are all things we do in between these two aspects of the kingdom. We celebrate Christmas. We know he came. The kingdom is at hand. We're still waiting for it to be uh, unrivaled and consummated. And so in between these two aspects, we worship, we work, we, we wait, we witness. This is what God's people do. And, and watch this, church. Watch. Why do we do those things? I'll just speak to you as a parent because he told us to. <laughs> now that's authority. Amen. This is why I don't understand some folks who in between these two kingdoms, they say they're a follower of Jesus. They say, they say, oh, I'm under the rulership of Jesus, but they act like he's more of a consultant. 
Like, well, let me think about that, Jesus, see if I want to do that. How does that work? He's king. He's given us commands until he comes back. Let's just do them. Now, as the paper begins to settle, let's see if we can understand maybe what this simple gift, the authority of Jesus as our king, what does it mean in the, in the shoe leather everyday world that you live in? Because I'm passionate about this, and I think as a church that enjoys theology, I appreciate the way you've listened. I think you've learned. We've taken notes. Like, we would agree. This is important to our lives, but sometimes it's like, well, how does it meet me when I leave these doors and I, I go to work? Or I log on and go to work these days, right? I mean, how does this work in the, in the real world, Todd? I want to bring some application to you that I think will be helpful. I want to have Jake help me today. So Jake's our director of youth and college ministries. Jake, come up here and join me, would you? And I'm going to have him help us answer the question, what is the next step response of a 21st century either believer or person to the authority of Jesus? Because in our culture, that could almost be something you rebel against. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we, in these last, what, nine months, have we not seen such incredible just rebellion and protests against any kind of authority? So here we are preaching on Christmas Sunday about authority, and we're making it sound attractive and desired, and I think it is. So how, how, do, how does a 21st century believer or just a 21st century person hear this, and what should be a next step response in a shoe leather way? Yeah, um, I think as I was thinking about this question this week, I think a lot of times in America or even a lot in our churches, we based love off of emotion. So if I feel a certain way, therefore the obedience will follow. But if you look in Scripture, that's not what love is at all. Um, love is based upon a choice, and it's based upon obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In Matthew chapter 22, we see the greatest commandments. They ask Jesus, what are the greatest commandments? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And when you love Jesus with your mind, you open the scriptures, and you begin to read about the character of God that we're called to emulate. And when you read those scriptures and you learn it, you learn that God is actually rich in love. He's slow to anger, which is good news for all of us. Mm. And then ultimately in Romans 2, 4, it says that his kindness is what leads us to repentance. So we learn about the character of God and we're called to emulate it. But it also leads us into the second part of that verse. It says, and then love your neighbor as yourself. God's greatest act of kindness to us was when Jesus died on that cross and he shed his blood for my sin and for your sin. And when he did that, he demonstrated to us that love is not emotion. Love is action. It's a choice. So King Jesus, he loved the world. He died on the cross. He rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And when King Jesus was ascending into heaven, he didn't say, if you feel like it, go out and share the good news. <laughs> he didn't say, if you're up for it or if you happen to be courageous today based upon your life circumstances. He made a direct command. He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's our marching orders. But we don't do that out of a heart of fear. We do it out of a heart of love because God is love, and he showed us what love actually looks like. So we don't feel ourselves into a way of acting. We act ourselves into a way of feeling. Yeah. Thank you, Jake. You connected there um, his authority and kind of our mission in some way. You know, as I was... 
um, just reading through a number of verses in the New Testament about authority, it's amazing how many times in the New Testament you find Christ's authority really connected to his mission. And those who were on the other end of hearing him would say things like this, he teaches as one with authority. And so authority is directly connected, like you said, to not only his mission, but I think now to the mission that, that he's given us, that we are part of. So in light of that, um, I know there's some positive stories of some traction in our body in regards to just mission. Like you said, obe- obedience. And one of them involves a small group of, of his, I'm not sure if it's a girl small group, but they were caroling. And kind of walk us through that story, can you briefly? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, you'll hear me, I, I feel like as I'm like getting deeper and deeper in youth ministry, I treat all the kids in the youth and my leaders are like, they're my people or my squad and like my family, so I'm bragging on them all the time. Um, so Joe and Angie O'Toole, they live in this neighborhood where they have to like decorate their house and do all this crazy Christmas stuff. Frosty Lane. Yeah. You've probably driven down it. Yeah. Um, and one of the ways that they were taking something simple and basic but applying the truths of scripture and the great commission to that is they set up something where they do Christmas caroling. And as people drive by, they're singing Christmas songs and it creates opportunities for spiritual conversations. So we announced that to the youth group and Julie Patterson's group along with Grace Patterson, they took their group of uh, six girls and they sang Christmas carols and they had spiritual conversations with people as they drove by and it created opportunities to share the gospel and they did it like three times, and at one point they were doing it in the rain. So if that's not commitment, I don't know what is. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. It's just a small way. It was one way to say, hey, we, we've got an opportunity. We've got a command. Let's not feel our way into it. Let's just do it. Yep. He's the king, right? Yep. Um, I know of a lady in our church who a few weeks ago, um, she brought her niece with her. And after the service, she brought the niece down to the front and said, hey, can you just pray for my niece? And her niece was there. And there was some, a physical issue too, but in the, in the course of the conversation, we just shared the gospel as well and, <clears throat> and just had a really wonderful talk. I had known that this lady, this aunt, was really praying for her niece's salvation. And that's why she was very intentional and bold in this moment. Two days after that, I get a text from the lady and uh, the niece that she had accepted Christ. Now, aren't you glad that on that Sunday, she didn't think, well, it's a little uncomfortable. I'm going to feel a little odd going down there. She says, you know what? Let's just take God at his word. Let's obey in regards to missional activity. And then God does what he promises, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that we went ahead and sent out over those. Uh, and actually, you guys did this. Uh, we sent over 500 postcards to those who were new in Ankeny. In fact, in your small groups this past fireside chat season, many of you wrote on those, right? I'm looking for nods. Hopefully you're, you recall doing that. Uh, so we just mailed those a week or two ago. So over 500 homes will get a postcard just inviting them to Christmas Eve or just expressing, you know, hey, we're glad you're in town. Uh, but things like that ring a bell of love, of hospitality, of missional activity. So I want to say on, with Jake, too, I want to brag on you guys. Thanks for being motivated by Christ's authority to be involved in missional activity. Help me think, Jake, would you? Now, I need to, I'm running a little late, so I need to wrap this up in a hurry here. Um, as good as those things are, and I'm, I'm proud of you, and I'm proud of us in the right sense of the word, um, I think we have a long way to go still. I think we need to continue to pray that God would stir a heart for evangelism and that he would remove fear from us. Because watch this, church. When you see the authority of Jesus... 
And it becomes the blazing confidence upon which you are involved in witnessing, waiting, worshiping, all those things. Um, it, it drives fear out. And until you see Christ's authority in that way, you'll probably be afraid. And fear is really just giving something else authority. And so you let it rule your life. And you're actually giving something that is a sub-authority, more authority than it should have. And hasn't that been 2020? We've given COVID way more authority than we probably should have. Political parties, pandemics. And we've made, when I say we, I mean the church at large has made decisions and reactions. And we've given allegiance and some type of authority to things that, and the truth is God's authority even in difficult times, has not ceased. His commands that flow from that authority have not stopped. Have we got to figure out how to work around it? Yes, but we don't stop following Jesus. Now, I've got a lot more to say about this in a podcast coming out in about a week and a half. I want to encourage you to listen to it. You'll be informed about it. You'll get it. I think it will help us not only have the right ending to 2020, but enter 21. Watch this. Not with fear, of pseudo-authorities, but with faith in Christ's authority. And that always leads to a missional lifestyle every time. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.